1: Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on this August?
0: So most of our listeners know that we normally take the month of August off. Danny goes off on her wonderful adventures across the world. I'm usually up in Maine or at a hockey tournament or something like that. And we decided, that sucks. Why should we leave you without a podcast for a month? Because we know you're all waiting with bated breath every Wednesday for this thing to come out. So we said, you know what? Let's do a summer reading series of what the hell should I read this summer? And let's find some of our friends who've written amazing books, and we're going to invite them on the podcast to talk about their books, talk about how they affect current events today. And we've got our first one.
1: And it really is a terrific one. We have a colleague at AEI, Chris Miller, who's one of our Gene Kirkpatrick scholars. It's a program that we do for people in academia to expose them to the policy world and to have them bring that understanding of how government works back to academia where, you know, God knows they need a little bit of reality injected. Chris is not one of those people who need that kind of a hand up but we're really happy that he was part of this program and he's written a simply terrific book called chip wars that came out last year and really was the alarm bell that i think has gotten much of washington to stand up and smack themselves on the head and go oh my god i actually need to understand this better i need to care about this
0: So just so people know, you read this litany during our interview, but this book is the FT Business Book of the Year, Economist's Best Books of 2022, The New Yorker's Best Books of 2022, one of the nine books recommended by the New York Times, one of the 12 best business books by the Times of London. It's a New York Times bestseller and described by the New York Times in its review as a cross between Mission Impossible and the China Syndrome. so he's taken this story of the silicon chip and explains the history of it, how it came about, what it is, basic stuff like that, how it impacts our lives, and why literally the fate of the world hangs in the balance in terms of who wins the chip war.
1: So we're not going to do our usual bickering because, you know, (laughs) we have nothing to bicker about here. We're not going to have our usual intro. We're not going to have our usual outro. We are really devoting this space to a discussion about this incredible book. Let me tell you a little bit about Chris Miller. In addition to being a Jean Kirkpatrick Visiting Fellow at AEI, he's an Associate Professor of International History at Tufts University. He's the co-director of the Fletcher School's Russia and Eurasia Program and the director of the Eurasia Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. In addition to Chip War*, his books have included We Shall Be Masters. That's such a great title. We Shall Be Masters, Russia Pivots to Asia from Peter the Great to Putin, Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgent Russia, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Mikhail Gorbachev and the Collapse of the USSR, and this most recent book, Chip War.
0: Here's our interview. Well, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you here. So you've written this fantastic book, Chip War, in the New York Times, called it a nonfiction thriller, equal parts China syndrome and Mission Impossible. That's a heck of a compliment coming from the from the New York Times. Tell us about the book and why you decided to write it.
2: Well, I started planning to write a book on the evolution of military power. But I quickly came to realize that if you look at how militaries have changed the past half century, it's by applying computing power to every system that they have. And I started studying, well, how is it that we've produced all of this computing power and learned in the process about the semiconductor industry, which is an industry that produces chips in all of our devices, not just military systems, but smartphones and dishwashers and coffee makers, and is one of the most concentrated industries in the world with almost all of the world's most advanced ships being produced in Taiwan. And so there was an extraordinary link between the centrality of ships to our military and our prosperity and the concentration of the industry in a region that is an increasingly tense and geopolitically contested area.
1: Okay. So I am a sucker for every kind of movie. First of all, every movie that ever had Tom Cruise in it. And yeah, I know it's a source of huge embarrassment to my family. And I'm not a Scientologist, I should add. I always have to say that. So what I want to hear from you is what made the New York Times call it part Mission Impossible. Talk a little bit about the evolution, the growth, the personalities involved are, I mean, the stuff of movies as well. But give us sort of a good sketch of the drama that we have in this book.
2: Well, you know, I I wasn't expecting actually nearly as much drama as I found, but it turns out that the production of chips is not just about engineers and material scientists. It's also about extraordinary business people that have... Founded billion and now trillion dollar companies. And it's the story of spies and intelligence agents trying to pilfer technology from their rivals. And so if you think about mission impossible, there's, there's actually a, a shocking relationship between intelligence agencies, and defense ministries around the world and the success or failure of their chip industries. And it's something that I really hadn't expected from a industry that I thought was mostly about making chips for my iPhone. What's the best story of your book? Give us your best story. Well, I think a lot of a lot of the, the best stories come from recent details about Chinese espionage campaigns in the US. There's a, a case from a couple of years ago of an employee of a US chip firm who left that company after pilfering all of his data and then typed into Google. How to delete all my files. <laughs> and he was, <laughs> that was immediately found in the investigation and he was tried and convicted. But more importantly than that, the Chinese courts retaliated by accusing the U.S. firm of violating trumped up Chinese patents. And so you had this dueling battle of, on the one hand, a, a completely watertight U.S. case, including efforts to delete evidence and a Chinese case that was waged in a kangaroo court with results, as you'd expect. And there's lots of cases of really kind of spy-like efforts to steal data and to try to use it to build new companies.
1: So what really is remarkable to me, obviously, the growth of this industry really is the stuff of not just science adventures and unique individuals, but the outcome is really strange in a lot of ways as well, because this remains a highly concentrated industry right this is an industry where you know more than 40% is in taiwan and in fact the head of taiwan Semiconductor is an old and good friend to the american enterprise institute so so you know morris chang so i've known morris for for more than 20 years and i have to say when i first met him i never realized that he was one of the titans of this world but there's the story of silicon valley and there's the story of this Dutch hold on chip lithography, which is something that I read about and then read about again and then read about a third time. And, yeah, I have no idea what the hell it is. And the Chinese <laughs> lagged behind and behind and behind. And help our readers understand why this critical, critical element of Everything we do, I mean, it's in the mic we're using, it's in the computer we're using, it's in the iPhone I'm holding up, and there are probably another 50 around my house in the washing machine, the dishwasher, the TV, and everything, in the car. Don't forget the car. How did this end up happening, and how did the Chinese end up being shut out so badly?
2: Well, a lot of people talk about the industry as being globalized, and and certainly there's links between the Dutch company you mentioned, the Taiwanese company you mentioned, U.S. firms that are also critical. But it's, it's actually an industry that's really defined by just five countries, the U.S., Japan, Taiwan, Korea, and the Netherlands. There's no other countries that play pivotal roles, and China is actually the world's largest importer of chips because it can't produce cutting-edge chips domestically. China's, in most years, spends as much money importing chips as it spends importing oil, which is sort of an extraordinary fact that illustrates how far behind they are, because, of course, if they could produce chips domestically, they would do so rather than buying them from Western firms. And it's been hard for China for two reasons. One is that the technological capabilities involved are the most complex that humans have ever undertaken. So the the chip inside of your iPhone, Danny, will have 15 or 20 billion tiny electronic components carved into it, each one of which is roughly the size of a virus. This is the most complex manufacturing we've ever done. And so in some ways, it's not a surprise that China hasn't caught up because there's nothing harder that humans have undertaken. But the second reason is that the way China's tried to catch up has actually been a a relatively bad strategy. The Chinese government has tried pouring billions and billions of subsidies into the chip industry to basically copy what's being done abroad and trying to develop it domestically. And copying is a bad strategy in an industry where the technological frontier races forward so rapidly. And this is the second key point, is that in the chip industry, progress is defined by what's known as Moore's Law which says that the computing power of chips will double every other year, roughly speaking. And no other industry in all of human history comes close to doubling every two years. I like to think about what would the world be like if airplanes doubled in speed every two years? And I actually calculated recently they'd be at six times the speed of light, physically impossible. But the chip industry has delivered that year after year for now more than half a century. So catching up is really, really hard to do.
1: So I developed a theory in my mind about this, and I, I want to know what you think. I mean, I've I've looked at the Chinese and how they've tried to dominate the patent market in a number of other spaces, and you know they have a sort of a flood the industry approach to it. You know, we'll patent this, we'll patent that. Well, you know, they try to they try to claim things as early as possible in order to sort of put a stake in the ground, but innovation remains mysterious to them, because so much of the intellectual property that has underpinned Chinese growth is stolen. And I wonder if I'm wrong to think that democracies, countries where people are free, countries where there are not managed or centrally planned economies, actually have the kind of fuel that's necessary to actually make Moore's law a reality. Am I being, am I being idealistic and unfair, or am I right? Right.
2: No, I, I think you're right that that market dynamics are key, and and I think in the the chip industry, what's been really remarkable in terms of. Why there's so much concentration is that there are huge economies of scale. If you build a bigger factory, you can produce more cheaply, you can hone your technology and therefore win more and more market share. And, and that's something the Chinese have really struggled with because they've got all of these different subsidy programs, each one run by a different provincial governor. And so they throw lots of money at their industry, but these companies don't have any customers. Whereas if you look at Taiwan Signature Manufacturing Company, the biggest chip maker in the world, they're serving all of the world's biggest consumer of chips. Companies like Apple, Nvidia, AMD, they they all go to TSMC to produce. And so they've got scale that nobody can match. And the second thing is that, you know, we often think of unique know-how as being something that you can patent. And in some industries, that's certainly true. But in this industry, there's certain things you can patent and people do, but there's a lot of know-how that you can't really get a patent on, but is actually critical to your ability to manufacture at scale. And so if you think, what does it take to have the know-how to produce a hundred million chips for Apple each year, each one of which has 15 billion transistors the size of a virus on it. You know, that's not a process you patent, but that's a, a type of know-how that's deep in the head of all of the thousands of engineers inside your company. And it's just very difficult to steal or replicate that type of knowledge. So Danny mentioned
0: that 40% of the world's chips come from Taiwan. I think it's 92% of the, of the most advanced semiconductors come from Taiwan. So how did Taiwan become so dominant in the chip industry? Danny mentioned Morris Chang, who fled China from the communists, was working at Texas Instruments and was passed over <laughs> as CEO of Texas Instruments. How different things might have been if he had gotten that job. But Taiwan doesn't seem to be the most secure place for us to have 92% of the high-end semiconductor industry there. How did that happen, and what is this national security threat to us if, if there were a conflict over Taiwan?
2: Why I joked to Morris Chang that TSMC could have stood for the Texas semiconductor manufacturing company (laughs) had TI made him CEO, but they didn't. That was an error. And he actually left TI after he was passed over for the CEO job and was, was looking for something new to do with his career. And he had an idea for a new type of semiconductor company. Before that point, all chips were both designed and manufactured by the same firm. And he realized that as manufacturing is getting more complex, more expensive, companies weren't going to want to do their manufacturing in-house. And he wanted to be sort of like what Gutenberg was for books. Gutenberg didn't write any books, he only printed them. TSMC, which Morris Chang founded in 1987, hasn't designed a single chip, it only manufactures them. And so companies like Apple, like AMD, like NVIDIA, like Google can go to TSMC for manufacturing and they all do. Because it's developed this scale to manufacture at very low cost and at very, very high levels of precision such that no one else in the world can match it. And so today TSMC does, as you say, produce over 90% of the most advanced processor chips. And you know, it's worth noting the most advanced chips are the chips in your smartphone, the chips in your PC, and the chips in the data center that manage and process all of your data. So we're all relying on these most advanced chips every single hour of the day. And it does create risks because, of course, China's military power grows and grows. Xi Jinping's volatility grows and grows. And the risk that China tries to blockade or maybe even attack Taiwan, I think, is meaningfully higher today than it was a decade ago.
0: So let's imagine a military conflict over Taiwan where the Chinese military, let's say, blockades Taiwan and there's no chips coming out of Taiwan. How does that impact us?
2: Well, it would really be economically catastrophic. If you look back to the chip shortages of the last couple of years, one thing that people don't generally realize is that the the chip shortages of the pandemic era were driven not by declines in supply, but by increases in demand. So the world actually produced more chips each year of the pandemic, more chips in 2020, more chips in 2021, even more in 2022. But demand grew faster. And so in certain industries, like the auto industry, there were huge disruptions. And so in a typical car, there's a thousand chips or so if it's a new car. And car companies found themselves missing just one chip, often cheap chips that cost a couple of dollars, but they couldn't produce the cars that they need. And so the auto industry faced, it's estimated several hundred billion dollars of unsold cars globally as a result of the chip shortage. Now imagine if we lost access to all of the 90% of the most advanced processor chips that are produced in Taiwan and many more of the less advanced processor chips that are produced in Taiwan. The implications would be far, far worse than the several hundred billion dollars that the auto industry faced the past couple of years. It would be smartphones, it would be PCs, it would be telecoms, infrastructure, data centers, but also a lot of goods that don't require advanced chips but still require less advanced chips of which Taiwan produces many. Dishwashers, microwaves, cars, toys, Today, almost anything with an on-off switch has a chip inside, often dozens or hundreds, and a huge share of those chips today can only be produced in Taiwan.
1: So I want to come back to something you said before, and I, I also don't want to leave the subject of Taiwan's security alone. Because let me make a little mental note, there are going to be a lot of arguments about whether Taiwan is a country or not, and whether the United States should defend Taiwan or not. Now, I happen to admire and like a lot my Taiwanese friends and the Taiwanese government. And so I don't want to abandon them. But actually, this isn't a sovereignty question. This is actually a national security question. So I want to stick a pin in that. But I want to come back to the question of subsidies and ask you about the CHIPS Act. So the Biden administration has touted the passage of the CHIPS Act as a huge progress, as a pillar of Bidenomics, whatever the fuck that is. And... (laughs) I know. We have a, we have an explicit rating and I often feel moved to do it when I talk about Biden's economic plans. But, Our own Derek Scissors has been very critical of it and talked about not just the problem of subsidies, which you were just talking about as a problem for the Chinese in their effort to replicate us, but also the fact that the Chinese are integrally part of our supply chain and that the CHIPS CHIPS Act doesn't actually exclude them from that in any way. So can you just explain that in a way that, you know, Mark could understand? (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think there are, there are two issues that we're trying and, and only doing a decent job of grappling with. The, the, the first is that there's not a level playing field for for chip investment. And so what's happened over the past 30 years is that governments, especially in East Asia and in quantitative terms, the most important is China, have been throwing billions and billions of dollars at chip firms, both Chinese chip firms, but also global chip firms to invest in China. And so there's been great studies done over the past couple of years finding that U.S. semi-hunter companies received more money in subsidies from foreign governments than they did from the U.S. government. And so if you ask, why is there less chip making in the U.S. today than there was 30 years ago? That's pretty clearly part of the answer. And in in theory, it would be great to have the WTO or some sort of uh, deal between different governments saying none of us are going to subsidize, but that's just not the world we live in. And so the reason Congress passed the SHIPS Act is partly with that in mind. It was sort of an effort to level the playing field, given that all other efforts to restrain other government subsidies, especially the Chinese government's hadn't worked and the effect had been to encourage us firms and other countries firms to move production to Asia and especially to China. So that, that, that was sort of one problem. The the second problem is the deep interlinkage between the entire us electronics industry and and China. And this is especially true when it comes to assembling devices. So you you produce your chip for your smartphone in Taiwan, but in most cases that phone is still assembled in China. And these are are two related but different issues. I think that the Chips Act does do something to level the playing field. It says if China is going to pay you to build a factory in China, we're going to offer something roughly comparable so that you don't feel a huge need to move all your production to China. Now there's you know, inevitable problems with programs like this. They always get politicized. This is a, a problem of every industrial policy program. We've seen the Commerce Department not only focus on chip investment, but also green energy and childcare, and tacking on other requirements, which I think you know is is a distraction from what the the, the real goal ought to be, which is creating a level playing field that doesn't disincentivize firms from investing in the U.S. But I think Derek is right that. Even if you get a level playing field, that is only a small part of the solution when you've got every U.S. tech firm deeply reliant on assembly in China. And we've seen some moves, I think, by firms who are looking at the landscape, getting nervous, moving production to Vietnam, moving to Thailand, moving to India. But the rate is slower than I think we probably need for security reasons, just because today every trillion dollar U.S. tech firm Just simply not operate without chips made in Taiwan and assembly of their devices in China.
0: So how do we do it right? I mean, it seems to me that there's a national security imperative for us not to be to, to to repatriate some of this production. And we just did a whole podcast on you know the military defense industrial base that has just atrophied since the end of the Cold War. And this you know this is exponentially more problematic because. Even if we had the defense industrial base to make weapons here at home, if they don't have chips, they, you know, they're they're just dumb bombs. How do we address this? What's the right solution?
2: Well, I, th- I think Congress and, and the administration have gotten part of the answer right, which is that you've got to do something to match the tax policy, the tax incentives that Asian governments, especially China, are giving. But they've missed that part of the cost differential, why it's more expensive to build chip making facilities here versus in China, is that we impose regulatory burdens that drive up costs. And so, you know, when Congress like child care market,
0: facilities requiring, requiring example, child care, I mean, the, the Biden administration there. literally wants to use the CHIPS Act to require manufacturers to provide child care for their employees.
2: He, I think that's 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 certainly part of it. The, the big issue in quantitative terms is actually construction. So mm-hmm. construction costs in the U.S. are just substantially higher than. In East Asia, and you know the Chips Act, due to the way Congress wrote it, requires the use of union labor and construction. And if you talk to chip firms, you know they'll say our construction costs are far, far higher than they need to be. For that reason, the other aspect is is regulation. NEPA, for example, we've talked about permitting in the energy sector, but it's just as bad in the chip sector. And so there's a great study that was recently wrapped up, which found that it takes longer to get the permits to build a chip making facility in the U.S. than it does in Europe. Wow.
1: Anytime you make an invidious comparison between the United States and Europe, that, that is evidence that we have completely screwed up. I, I want to come back to this question, though, because, again, the CHIPS Act doesn't emphasize diversification. The CHIPS Act emphasizes repatriation, right? So it's not about okay you should definitely move out of china but we don't give a damn you can move to vietnam communist vietnam you can move to thailand you know you can move you can move to malaysia or or mexico or anywhere i mean anywhere that isn't China, or maybe China or Russia. And what I don't understand is why there hasn't been sufficient pushback from people who normally understand that empowering unions, empowering regulatory agencies in the United States is not going to solve the underlying problem. It may be great for unions, but it's not going to solve the underlying chip problem, which is at the heart of our future.
2: You know, I, I think partly it's because chip firms themselves have been focusing, as you probably guess, on on getting subsidies rather than pushing back on the cost issues that have been disincentivizing investment. So that that's a, a a real problem. I think the other part is that the the administration's rhetoric and and also a lot of the rhetoric out of Congress is about onshoring. It's about American semiconductors. When you look at what the industry is actually doing, though, it's doing exactly what you're recommending, Danny, which is to say, let's move production to other countries. Let's actually increase our investment, increase our trade links, increase our our tech transfer between allies like Japan, like Europe, like Korea, like Southeast Asia as well. And so I I think there's a a mismatch between what the administration is actually talking about, which is... You know, ribbon cutting on big factories and in the U.S., which is you know what they want the news cycle to be about, what companies are actually doing, which is making their supply chains as efficient as possible while also dealing with the over-reliance on China.
0: So talk to us a little bit about the military applications of chips. I mean, the, most Americans became aware of this during Desert Storm when you had the first widespread use of precision weapons. And we have these amazing missiles that could lean on. I remember the old Doonesbury cartoon of a cruise missile going through a window and chasing a guy down the stairs. And, you know, the precision involved in that was just stunning. And precision weapons have really taken over warfare. Talk to us about how we've become so militarily dependent on chips, and how they've enabled American military dominance.
2: Well, certainly if you look over the past couple of decades, it is precision strike, the ability to target with a missile hundreds of miles away with almost perfect precision that has been transformative the last 30 years. I think if you look forward to the next couple of decades it's the application of AI and autonomy to military systems and you see every major military, US, China, Japan trying to explore how they're going to be deploying AI to military systems and it's already happening. We we see even in the Russia Ukraine war ways that both sides are exploring with semi-autonomous or fairly autonomous systems. And if you you want to train a, a car to drive autonomously, you need a ton of sensors, a ton of data processing, and a lot of very advanced chips on that car. Same thing is true with a drone. You want it to fly autonomously, you need very advanced semiconductors, both on the drone itself, but no less critically in the data center that is teaching the drone how to fly autonomously. And so when you look at the types of systems that the Pentagon wants to be buying, they're increasingly autonomous and therefore will increasingly rely on very, very advanced semiconductors that can train AI systems in big data centers.
1: You know, we we are seeing some of the implications of this because the Russians are being denied the semiconductors that they need. I mean, that's why they're stripping, you know, other technology in order to so buying washing machines, buying other other technology in order to be able to strip the chips out of that and put them in their weaponry. But I think it has had an impact on their op tempo versus Ukraine. Is that right?
2: Yeah, you know, it's been really, really interesting looking at the studies that have been done on Russian military equipment that has been captured in Ukraine. You break it apart and look at the electronics and it's all stolen ships. It's U.S., it's Japanese, it's South Korean ships. And, you know, partly that's a sign we need to be better at making sure our chips don't get into their systems. And this is a real challenge that I don't think we've done enough to, to upgrade our enforcement capabilities. But it also speaks to the backwardness of, of Russian capabilities. They, they simply can't make modern equipment without access to our chips.
0: So we had Jack Keane on the podcast, and one of the things he said is that because of the sanctions that are preventing the Russians from getting Western chips, they've been getting most of their chips from China, and they have like something like a I I want to say a 40% failure rate. What is that implication for that, not just in Ukraine, but just in a conflict with China over Taiwan? It seems like the authoritarian world is way behind us in terms of its chip capabilities and thus... That gives us a military advantage over authoritarian states. I mean, the Iranian drones aren't as effective as the Western drones are. We have a huge technological advantage. How do we keep it?
2: We know, I think we've got a huge advantage over Russia. We've got a huge technological advantage over Iran. The challenge is that our advantage over China has slipped. We still have an advantage, but it's not nearly as big as it was a decade ago or two decades ago. And that's precisely why this issue has become so much more critical right now. It's that we need to fight harder than ever to keep our advantage and to stop China from using U.S. technology and tools and software to build up its own chip industry. Because the reality is that China used to be 10 generations behind in terms of the chips it can produce, but now it's only three or four generations behind depending on how you calculate and if it can access some of our chips by smuggling it can get closer and closer and so that's really the issue is that as china's military spending has grown simultaneously its tech capabilities have grown too they're not as good as ours but they're getting closer in a way that makes me pretty nervous
1: so i want to come back to the issue i stuck a pin in before Because I I do think that a lot of discussion about Taiwan has, you know, has centered on these sort of arcane Kissingerian, you know, five, six decade ago questions, you know, well, we have a one China policy, you know, and just speaking completely selfishly, you know, screw them, screw their freedom, screw their democracy, you know, forget about all of that, totally selfishly. How do we picture us? What happens? Mark sort of asked you a version of this question. But what happens if next week Xi Jinping decides (laughs) it's go time and we're obviously not ready no matter what, what are the implications for our economy at that moment?
2: I think it's really not an overstatement to say that we're at Great Depression levels of impact on our manufacturing capabilities. we, We would struggle to produce cars. We would produce basically no smartphones for at least a year, maybe longer, PCs, data centers, telecoms, infrastructure, you, know, you go across the types of goods we manufacture, and they all have chips in them. And not every single one of those chips is made in Taiwan, but Taiwan produces such a huge share of chips and such a large, you know, 90% of the most advanced chips is just not replaceable in months or even in a couple of years. It would take probably half a decade to fully replace Taiwan's making capacity. And so it's really hard to overestimate the economic impact. It'd be the worst economic downturn we've seen in half a century.
1: So, I mean, okay. You know, and I think I think your book lays this out, I think your book makes this clear. Why is this not front and center in the debate? Sure, we've got the CHIPS Act, but the Chips Act is kinda, you know, an analog solution, if you want, not probably the right the right word, but an analog solution to a really freaking high tech problem. Why isn't everybody's hair on fire? <laughs>
2: You know, I I think there are still far too many people who think that the scenario you laid out of a a real war is simply impossible. A lot of people just think it it couldn't happen. The cost would be too large. And and I'm always struck by talking to people in the the tech sector, including companies that are fundamentally 100% reliant on production in China. Well, well, why aren't you a bit more diversified? And I still hear a lot. Well, it's they're not really going to do it, are they? It's not really conceivable. Doesn't Xi Jinping isn't he really focused on GDP growth? Well, you know, I don't I don't see evidence for that, but there's a lot of people who haven't gotten their heads around the risk. I think the second thing to note is that, you know, if you ask yourself what should we do about the fact that Taiwan is such a critical producer of chips, you know, part of the answer is we should be defending Taiwan more successfully. If you ask yourself, what's the best way to insure ourselves against Xi Jinping deciding to go to war, it's deter him from doing it. It's building up our military capabilities. It's making sure he knows he would lose. I think the big problem is that 20 years ago, everyone knew. We knew, the Chinese knew, the Taiwanese knew, if there was a war, who would win? And today, there's a lot more uncertainty around that question. And I worry that Xi Jinping on certain days of the week might think that if there were a war, he would win. And that's the the uncertainty that drives, I think, this risk.
0: So we had Admiral Jim Stavridis and Elliot Ackerman on the show talking about their book 2034. And one of the things that they predict is that China would be able to disable our advanced technology in a way that we would go analog. (laughs) We would be forced to go analog. And how, you know, they're not even teaching celestial navigation in the Naval Academies anymore. (laughs) How vulnerable does this dependence on chips make us in the sense that, you know, we've lost the ability and maybe even the AI revolution will make us even more dependent? How vulnerable are we to the fact that we could lose our access to chips or the functioning of our chips, and what is the national security implication of that strategy?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge issue. And as China makes more and more low-end chips, and as more and more low-end Chinese chips make it into our systems, into our dishwashers, but also cars and airplanes, that risk grows. And I, I think we've spent the last decade learning about cybersecurity risks and at least trying to address some of them. We've got companies that specialize in cybersecurity No one has put any effort into hardware security, securing the chips that all of our computers rely on. There's very little focus on that. Companies don't think about it. The U.S. government has put a little bit of thinking, but not much into it. And it's a huge problem. I think the challenge is that there aren't great techniques for mitigating these risks. And so what I think we're going to end up doing is just moving towards more of a blanket ban, saying we don't want any Chinese components in critical systems because we can't verify whether or not they work as they're supposed to.
1: Right, except for the fact that as, you know, as you said and as Derek said, what that means is not clear to everybody, right? So you can say we don't want Chinese critical components, much like you can say I don't want China making my, my antibiotics. Okay. Well, then we should definitely make the antibiotics in Lordstown, Ohio. Mark, Mark loves these in Lordstown, Ohio is like the everyman town. We should definitely make it there. Uh, oh, okay, except for the fact that all of the key ingredients to actually manufacture it still come from China. And they might pretend it comes from India, but actually it comes from China. Until we address every part of that, we are as vulnerable as we were at the get-go. Or am I misunderstanding this?
2: No, I think that's right. You're starting to see companies undertake really detailed studies of their own supply chains, learning things about their reliances that they even didn't know when they started. In the past couple of months, we've we've seen major announcements from companies that make PCs like Dell or HP, that they're beginning to shift their assembly outside of China and deliberately try to reduce their reliance on components from China, precisely for this reason, because they're getting customers asking them, how do you know your Chinese-made components work as expected? And the reality is no one can answer that question with certainty. And so they're beginning to shift not just their final assembly, but all of their component supply outside of China as well.
0: Talk to us a little bit about contrasting the nuclear arms race with the Soviet Union with the chip race with China today. Are there some analogies that we can draw from our experiences back then? And how do they impact the chip race today? Because I think it's probably as consequential for the future of peace
2: and security in the world. You know, it's interesting. I think in some ways, the chip race is even more complex because nuclear weapons didn't change all that much. There there were fission weapons, there were fusion weapons, delivery systems changed a bit, but actually the rate of change in the chip industry is even more rapid. And so it's going to be harder for any country to stay on top because you've got to constantly be pushing forward your technology, doubling your capabilities every two years. And the good news is that US firms have been great at waging this race. They've been on top by many metrics for decades in a row. The bad news is that China is putting many billions of dollars into catching up and it's using all of its power over supply chains to coerce US firms and Japanese firms and Taiwanese firms to transfer their information. So we've got to you know, wage this struggle, not only in terms of how do we apply it to defense systems, but also how do we understand the risks in the economy, the risks that firms face as they're pressured by China to turn over technology.
0: You tell a great story in the book just about the priority that China puts on on its chip manufacturing. The story of their company, YMTC, which just happens to manufacture chips in Wuhan (laughs) and then Wuhan got locked down. But YMTC didn't tell us.
2: Tell us that story. Well, in the, the middle of the earliest stages of the pandemic, when Wuhan was at the epicenter, there were special trains that were chartered for YMTC employees to go in and out of the city. When everything else was shut down, YMTC was still able to operate because it was seen as such a priority. And I think it's a great anecdote for just how focused Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership are on this issue. And he's made a series of very high profile speeches saying this is the core technology that he wants China to find a way to produce domestically. And they know they're far behind. They know they're reliant on lots of chips made in Taiwan with U.S. technology, and they're desperate to find a way to domesticate it and to reduce the reliance on us.
1: Without sounding, you know, self-congratulatory or excessively fawning here, you know, when you joined us at AEI as a, as a Jean Kirkpatrick scholar, you know, one of the things you said to me, well-known tech expert, Danielle Pletka, was you said, yeah, you know, I want to work on Russia. I want to write about Russia. Russia has been, you know, my area of interest, but I'm finishing up this book on chips. And, you know, so would that be okay? And I said, yeah, sure. That's, that sounds great because, you know, I'm very far-seeing. But honestly, you I was just pulling up the list of recognition, you know, awards that you got for this book. You were the Financial Times Business Book of the Year, one of The Economist's Best Books of 2022, one of The New Yorker's Best Books of 2022, one of nine books that were recommended to be read by The New York Times, one of 12 Best Business Books by The Times, I think that's of London, all of these things. And I'm not even listing all of the awards. Here's my $64,000 question.
0: Should Danny um, get credit for your success? Yeah. <laughs> that's the
1: 64,000. You know thank you more vociferously in the, in the forward. No, no, no. That's not my question. You know, after Winston Churchill wrote a book called While England Slept. You know, I know why this book got all these awards. It's an outstanding book, it's extraordinarily well, well written, it's extraordinary research. It's really a terrific book. But why the hell didn't someone write this book before? <laughs> this is, this, no, I'm serious. I mean, when you talk to us, this is something that could have cataclysmic impact on our well-being if we don't better understand it, and yet you wrote this really great book, and basically nobody else wrote as important, as in-depth, as a sort of a flag-waving, hey, pay attention to this book, before. Why? Why?
2: Well, I think there are, are, are two reasons, maybe. One is that we've had a lot of discussion about tech and international affairs and politics over the past decade or two, but it's almost exclusively been about software firms and social media and search engines, which is obviously important issues. But we've really neglected the hardware on which all tech runs. And, and that was something that. Seemed to me to be important, and I think has really come out over the past couple of years, just how critical semiconductors are. And our our entire debate about tech and politics was too fixated on Facebook and insufficiently focusing on on what makes Facebook run, and that's lots and lots of semiconductors. I think the second thing was that, you know, supply chains are in many ways a very boring topic, and it, it. I think it takes a lot to make sense of what a supply chain is and and why does it matter. And people just hadn't really done detailed work into, well, well, how is it that my smartphone is made and and how is it that my PC is made and what's inside the data center that actually now stores and processes processes all my data. And it's really complex. It involves spending a lot of time in East Asia and understanding who are these companies deep in Apple's supply chain. And so there was a, a whole lot of not very sexy work that I did on understanding all of the, the, the Taiwanese and the Japanese and the Korean component suppliers, which I couldn't have predicted how much interest there would be in the end result. But I think one th- conclusion that I, I definitely did draw is that we need to understand in much more detail how the goods that we consume are actually produced. And, you know, you brought up the pharmaceutical supply chains. I think basically in every industry, there's all sorts of unknown vulnerabilities and dependencies on China and other adversaries that we just haven't studied. And so we don't even know they exist.
1: So, you know, look, I love the American Enterprise Institute. I'm really proud that you're part of our work. I'm really proud that you did this work and people recognized it. You know, we're a, a $50, $60 million a year organization. And, you know, one of your colleagues and ours figured out how we could win the Iraq War before Barack Obama figured out how we could lose it. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to belittle the work we do. On the other hand... I I assume our listeners know what the budget of the Pentagon is and the budget of the intelligence community. Yeah, I know supply chains are boring and digging into this stuff is hard, but you're one guy. What the hell is wrong with the U.S. government?
2: (laughs) You know, I think that the government for a long time, for, for some good reasons and some bad reasons, treated these questions as problems for industry to deal with. And in, in the 1990s and 2000s, when Chinese military power was really quite limited, the Chinese couldn't you know, cause major problems, the threat to Taiwan was low, that was maybe a reasonable approach to take. But over the last 10 years, Chinese military power has grown dramatically. So has the threat to Taiwan. And so all the supply chains that... U.S. companies built over the last three decades now need to be reassessed. And it's taken government a long time to realize that's not just a problem for these companies and their supply chain operators. It's a problem for all of us because we're all hugely exposed, the U.S. military, as much as anyone, to these vulnerabilities that we're only dimly aware of. Exit
0: question for me. So we've talked about
2: the importance of chips. We've
0: talked about the efforts we're making to repatriate our chip making capabilities and secure Our access to chips. We've talked about China's Manhattan Project style effort to get better at at chip making so they can be independent of us. How are we doing in our efforts to stop them? Because there's the defensive side of it, but there's also the offensive side, which we haven't talked about. I mean, are we actively taking measures to prevent China from succeeding to undermine their success? to prevent them from getting access to Western scientists and all the rest of it. Talk a little bit about our offensive operations to thwart them in their efforts to fix this vulnerability.
2: Yeah, this is where there's really been a huge change in in what the U.S. government's doing. About five years ago, six years ago, it began ratcheting up the controls on the transfer of U.S. technology to China. The types of machines that make semiconductors, for example, as well as certain types of advanced chips and Equally importantly, it got allies like Japan, like the Netherlands, to implement similar controls. And so five years ago, you could import basically any type of advanced shipmaking tool you wanted to China with very few questions asked. And today, it's vastly harder to import not just the cutting edge, but also one or two generations behind the cutting edge. So we're making it really tough for the Chinese to access anything close to the cutting edge. And I think that's that's the right approach, because for too long, we were very, very supportive, actually, of China's technological catch-up. And... Thanks to that, they caught up to a substantial degree. And it's only really the past five years where we've turned around in a really big way and said to China, no, you can't use our technology to pursue your own catch up strategy.
1: Right. You have to go back to stealing it. We're not, we're not just going to give it to you. Exit question for me, Chris. If, as you look at the timelines for us Mm -hmm. moving out of the danger zone, (laughs) haha. another Tom Cruise reference, moving out of the danger zone on diversification on chips overall and on other pieces of technology that aren't just chips because we haven't talked at all about that because the book is called Chip Wars, but there are a whole series of others. And you look at the timeline of our adversaries. Do you think that you give us good odds of success?
2: Well, I I think that the challenge is that we, we don't really know our adversaries' timelines you know no one knows whether xi jinping will attack taiwan next year or in 5 years or never and that makes it actually really tough because we've got to take enough steps to ensure ourselves that if something happens next year we're in an okay position but we also don't want to spend trillions of dollars reworking supply chains immediately if we've actually got a decade to do so and so it's it's a hard question to answer with confidence it's, it's a balance that's got to be struck my sense is that we're 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 not doing enough that companies still underestimate the risk that their shareholders don't pressure them to insure themselves against this risk. And as a result, the entire corporate landscape is a, still a bit naive about the prospect of potential war in Asia. But I, I understand as well when companies say, well, we can't do it all overnight, or we could, but the cost would be so dramatic that we're just not able to afford it. And so there, there is a balance to be struck, but I think there's more we ought to be doing because, you know, as, as you say, Chinese military power grows year after year. And as it grows, the risk of an attack grows too.
0: Well thank you so much for joining us. This is just such a really fascinating discussion. Thank you, Danny, for being responsible for all of Chris's great work and, and taking credit of it. You're welcome. Work. Yes. I know uh, that
1: I'm thank you, Mark, for recognizing my, my pivotal role here. And and Chris, I want to say this while you're still here. You know, there are people who are gonna look at the title of your book and say, That's that's not my area. I don't understand that, you know, that that technological stuff. Uh, All I can say is you've really done a masterful job in uh, making it easy enough for me to understand. I won't insult Mark again. For me to understand and for bringing drama and uh, intelligence and coherence to uh, something that we all need to understand better. So everybody should go out and get this book.
0: You turned supply chains into Mission Impossible. That's pretty cool.
1: (laughs) Thanks again, Chris. Take care. Uh,
0: Thank you. You turn supply chains into Mission Impossible. That's pretty cool.
1: <laughs> Thanks Thank again, you. Chris. Take care.
0: Thank you. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review
1: the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it. Comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this.
0: Thanks for listening.